From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. We have NBC Radio's coverage of the 1944 Democratic National Convention. World War II was at its peak at the time, and Democrats met in Chicago to renominate President Franklin Roosevelt for a fourth term in office, even though there were many rumors that FDR was in very poor health. Meanwhile, the party establishment pulled Vice President Henry Wallace off the ticket and replaced him with Senator Harry Truman, much to the outrage of attendees. We'll have real-life political drama right after this break. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Nationwide is on your side. Get full details at krobcollection.com. An animated and thrilling scene. Uh, the usual bunting and flags around. The edges of the mezzanines and balcony have been draped with flag. Little V signs for victory illuminating. A little neon red, white, and blue signs. And here and there interspersed on the balconies are the shields of the various states. The only other uh, signs in the building or in the stadium is uh, one strip of photographs and replicas of the visages of some dozen uh, presidents, Democratic presidents, says the sign, and their names running from Jefferson chronologically up to Roosevelt. One more feature which we should mention here in this flag-draped convention hall of the Chicago Stadium is a giant cutout picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the northwest corner there. In serene countenance, he surveys the scene where his name was placed the nomination and selected. And now, the Reverend Harrison Anderson of the Fourth Presbyterian Church will shortly deliver the invocation as we, con- we continue this session of the uh, Democratic National Convention. Uh, the uh, usual procedure is... Let us pray. ...to go on... Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, and here we stand before the, Thee uh, to acknowledge Thee as the time. Lord. Is uh, in our well, I thought for a moment that we would, we would have an announcement of importance the Lord has come the house, at, uh, at this precise they labor in vain that build it. We would also remember that there is only one foundation. As we told you, seated alongside us is uh, one of NBC's staff of correspondents who sat with us today as we watched the tumultuous session which marked the acceptance of the platform and the uh, uh, choosing of Franklin D. Roosevelt as the party's nominee. Uh, Robert St. John's been sitting alongside us throughout the day and uh, gathering himself a sheaf of news bulletins. Uh, Bob, have you some comments at this time? I have a little uh, material from abroad, uh, Ben, I'd like to tell our listeners about. Uh, Often uh, Germany tonight, Adolf Hitler has just announced that the group of German army officers who attempted to assassinate him uh, have either committed suicide or have been executed. But anyway, Hitler claims that that conspiracy has been nipped in the bud by what he called speedy, ruthless action. There are no more details about where the attempted assassination took place or uh, just who the uh, men were that attempted to kill Hitler. All we know is that the one name Hitler gave us was Colonel Count von Stroffenberg. Just who he is... We don't know. I uh, return you now to Ben Grauer. The uh, speakers who are on our program tonight are familiar to many radio listeners. Helen Gahagan Douglas, the wife of Melvin Douglas, is noted as an actress and as a young California woman 
deeply interested in public affairs. Melvin Douglas, a film actor, is now an army captain in the China-Burma-India theater, and uh, Mrs. Douglas, as Helen Gahagan, became interested in social reform, he says, in 1932, when the youth of the nation started migrating to California in search of jobs. A deep interest ever since in the social reforms of the Roosevelt administration, Mrs. Douglas has said, has made her conscious of politics, but she disavowed being a politician. There is no disputing the fact that she has great presence and great personal charm, and uh, our audience here, I know, is looking forward to hearing and seeing her when she gives her address. Quentin Reynolds, of course, is the world-famous international correspondent who has recently returned from visits to the fighting front. Uh, Quent is, uh, as he's known affectionately by his intimates, is a strong... A well-built fellow with a large, ready smile and a warm personality and a free and easy way of speaking which we feel will endear him to his audience here. And now, in just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have the singing of the national anthem. The singer who will perform for our audience here at the convention is Danny O'Neill. He's just stepped to the front of the platform and he is being received by the audience We'll have the national anthem sung by Danny O'Neill. National anthem. Delegates who came late will now find their places, and those who are visitors and guests who are in the aisle will please clear the aisle so that the delegates may find their places. Let us have the center aisle cleared, please, the sergeant at arms. Let's ask the delegates to move in quickly. Ladies and gentlemen, the next session of Congress will be graced with the presence of a young woman, the wife of an army captain, who is now serving in the field of combat. She is a good Democrat, a good liberal, and an able leader, who has gone from one brilliant career the stage and screen into another, the field of politics, where we all know her name will shine as brightly. I have pleasure in presenting to you Helen Cahagan Douglas, a very lovely lady. Right. 
advised, as I use the word advisedly, because she's tall, lithe, and graceful in the movement, strides to the front of the platform to the speaker's rostrum, where she's joined by Chairman Sam Jackson, and they're posing for the photographer. We, the people, want no breadlines as a result of the peace we all long for. because he has refused to consign any part of the American people to poverty. Here tonight, we are keenly aware of our men and women on the battlefront all over this world. We have in our hearts the deepest gratitude for their sacrifices. We are of stern determination to give each and every one of them not just lip service, but full opportunity for rehabilitation, education, for jobs, for advancement in a full and happy life. We each see our own, you and I, the one we love best in relation to this war. There is scarcely a home across the length and breadth of this country that hasn't been touched by it. But you belittle your son, your daughter, your husband, and I belittle my husband, and we imperil our children unless we see our dear ones now serving overseas in relation to their country, their world, their future. It is with this future in mind that this convention has made its choice. We know that this country, mindful of the quickening pulse of social change the world over, will choose a president who will lead us to a fuller and richer life. We know this because we are the party of the people. It has no interests apart from the interests of the American soldiers, the millions of American workers and farmers, of American businessmen. There is no conflict between what the Democratic Party wants and what the majority of the people of America want, for they want the same. Enthusiastically, it is being received right now by the convention members. Everyone has stood up in his place or a place, and incidentally, we can say in passing, we said some of the seats were empty, but uh, they aren't now. The entire stadium is jammed to the door. 
Every delegate and alternate is in place, and every one of the seats is taken. In fact, there's an overflow crowd that is jamming the ramps and entrances. There must be some, oh, 500 or 1,000 people. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Chairman Jackson. I see the aisles are crowded now in this demonstration. I'm going to ask you to please be seated. There's time and room. Let's have the aisles cleared. Can we have the center aisle cleared, please? Now, during this next address, I hope you will make yourselves comfortable. You will want to hear, and you certainly can't hear comfortably milling up and down the aisle. There are seats for delegates. Please take your seats, and those who are visitors in the aisles, will you please... Uh, Make way so that the delegates can find their places and be seated. I want to make a suggestion to the delegates and to the visitors. We were listening on the radio, and the audible conversation is not particularly helpful. Ladies and gentlemen, back from the field of combat where he faced the enemy fire as an observer and participant in the opening of the Western Front, has come one of America's best-known and best-liked writers. We shall hear tonight what the boys over there think about, not as hearsay, but as seen and heard and felt at first hand by one who went side by side with our soldiers into battle. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing to you Quentin Reynolds. Impressive figure of Quentin Reynolds leaves the speaker's platform and comes right out there on the speaker's roster. Quentin Reynolds, tall, erect, broad-shouldered, curly brown hair, in a dark blue suit, easy of manner, smiling of countenance, broad, happy grin on his face. Hello, he says to a lot of the newsboys and photographers, many of whom he's known professionally in daily contact and working in news coverage and overseas too. Hello, he smiles and bows them. He stands there in a pool of brilliant white light from the Kleegs above. Quentin Reynolds on the speaker's rostrum of the Democratic National Convention. things to us as a people. For one thing, it has changed millions of us who used to be mere spectators into participants. Millions of us who once went meekly to the polls on election day or who didn't bother to go at all, now for the first time have become conscious of the fact that we have no right to sit by idly and allow professional politicians to do our thinking for us. <clears throat> we have no right to be mere spectators in any affair which concerns the welfare of our country. doing everything in his power to avert the catastrophe. As far back as 1937, in this very city of Chicago, this man said, war is a contagion whether it be declared or undeclared. It can engulf states and peoples remote from the original scene of hostilities. We are determined to keep out of war Yet we cannot insure ourselves against the disastrous effects of war. We could no more escape this war than King Canute 
could hold back the tides. We could no more escape this war than we could hold back the winds of a hurricane or stop the earth from rotating around the sun. But millions of our countrymen didn't realize this until December 7, 1941, when that other comfortable world we knew came to an end. And then the Japanese told us in no uncertain terms that this was our war, too. They convinced millions of Americans who until then had been using the old ostrich defense of sticking their heads in the sand and hearing nothing, seeing nothing, feeling nothing. They forgot that when you use the ostrich defense, you leave part of yourself in a mighty vulnerable position and the obvious thing is apt to happen. By now, your sons know that this is no foreign war. They know it each night, back of the lines, when they listen to the German radio. Incidentally, they listen to Radio Berlin assiduously. The good Dr. Goebbels gives them half an hour of American swing music each night and ten minutes of propaganda. They love the music and get a laugh out of the propaganda. The propaganda is frankly and bluntly aimed at our democracy, at our way of living. And if any of them ever had any doubts as to what they were fighting for, the good Dr. Goebbels, by his propaganda, has taught them what they are fighting against. They learned that this was no foreign war when they first went to England. They saw the shrines of England in ruins. They saw the scars on the House of Commons, and they saw the precious stained glass windows of Westminster Abbey lying broken in the dust. The House of Commons has always been the symbol of free speech in Britain. This indeed was a logical target for Hitler's bombs. Westminster Abbey has always been a symbol of the Christian way of life in Britain. This, too, was a logical target for Hitler's bombs. Your sons knew then that Hitler was waging war not against any one country, but against our ideals and our way of life. No matter where they were found, whether it be Prague or Oslo or London or Chicago, your sons learned that this was no foreign war when they captured their first prisoners in northern Africa and heard arrogant, contemptuous voices sneering at our democracy. They knew it was no foreign war when they saw the bestiality of the Hermann Goering division in Sicily, a division which even booby-trapped its own dead. Then they entered the cities and towns of Sicily and Italy. And they saw the incredible ravages the Germans had been guilty of. When they heard the stories of those who had survived, these grim-faced, tight-lipped sons of yours knew then that this was their war and ours. Yes, your sons know what they're fighting for. Even if some of us at home are sometimes a little bit confused, on the way into the Bay of Salerno last September, I was on a ship that had just one chaplain. 3 a.m. was to be H hour at Salerno. We steamed through the Mediterranean, one of a thousand unseen ships, in the quiet and darkness of the night, pressed down upon us all. I passed the chaplain's cabin. He had a sign on his door which merely said, open all night, and there was a line of 40 men waiting to talk to him. I went on deck and sat with a group of assault troops. They were quiet now, each in his own way trying to overcome his fear. All soldiers are afraid just before combat. They're afraid of the waiting. They're afraid of being afraid at the crucial moment. 
They're afraid of the nameless unseen ghosts that walk through the halls of the night. They're always all right once they swing ashore with their guns in their hands and their grenades at their belts. But it's always bad just before that. You men who were in the last war know you always suffered more during that period of waiting before zero hour than when you were actually going over the top. It was like that approaching Solano. The boys got to talking. One of them joined us and said he'd just been in to see the chaplain. A nice fellow, the Padre, the boy said. You know, I talked to him and got some things off my mind, and he was pretty swell to me. And you know, he never asked me what church I belonged to. One of the other fellows chimed in and said he'd had the same experience with the chaplain. Then the boys squatting there in the quiet of the deck, surrounded by their guns and tin hats and ammunition and rations, started talking about why we were fighting and what we were fighting for. They all knew what we were fighting against, but they weren't very articulate in putting into words just what we were fighting for until a big corporal from Texas, a member of the 36th Division, said quietly, I'll tell you what we're fighting for. We're fighting for things like what happened tonight with the chaplain. Half the ship went in to see him because we were scared. He didn't do any preaching about patriotism or hellfire. He just soothed us, kind of, and let us talk about home to him. And then we left feeling better, yeah. And he never asked any of us what our religion was. Did that happen anywhere but in our country? No, and that's what we're fighting to keep. And we're fighting for another thing, too. We're fighting for the right to ball out the umpire. He went on, he said, I mean when I go home, if I get a job and I don't like the boss, I can quit and get another job. If I think the boss is calling the plays wrong, I can just leave. If I go to a movie and I don't like it, why, I can leave and shop around until I find the kind of movie I do like. Nobody's going to be telling me what kind of movie I got to see, like it is in Germany. And if I don't like what one newspaper says, if I don't like the way it calls the play, well, that newspaper fellow is the umpire, and I can ball them out and find myself a paper I do like. Nobody's going to tell me what paper I got to read. And when I turn on the radio... It isn't like in Germany where there's only one station and you got to listen to it because the government controls it and you hear nothing on it but propaganda. If I don't like what I hear on the radio, I can make with a twist of the wrist and get another station. Sure, that's what we're fighting for, he said. And add it all up together. And it means we're fighting for the right to ball out the umpire. Believe me, your sons and the sons of your neighbors know what they're fighting for. And they're doing a lot of thinking over there on both sides of the world. They're thinking of the world they're coming back to one day. But they also know one other thing. They know that this mighty achievement, which dwarfs any other in the whole history of our country was all accomplished under the leadership of their commander-in-chief and ours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Quentin Reynolds. The banners are flying and state standards are being waved. In fact, off in the distance, you probably can hear the sound of a siren uh, sounded by some enthusiastic uh, convention visitor. 
While we've been talking, while Friend Reynolds has been talking, a significant bulletin has just come in on our news printers here in the NBC booth, which, following the attempt on Adolf Hitler's life today, takes on added meaning. It comes by a burn Switzerland. Skirmishes took place in various parts of Germany today between Nazi party members led by SS troopers and groups of the regular army, according to unconfirmed reports reaching here tonight. Conferences of the Nazi party organization were held in all principal cities of the Reich this evening. Members were asked to reaffirm their loyalty to the party and to Adolf Hitler, according, this is, to reliable information in this bulletin via Bern, Switzerland. This, coupled with the news we've had of the attempt on Hitler's life, gives indication, to some extent anyway, of a revolt against Hitler's leadership and a possible crumbling of the Nazi high command. Now back to our domestic scene here at the Democratic National Convention. As we've told you, this is absolutely a capacity night here in the Chicago Stadium. We've witnessed the Republican National Convention some three weeks ago, and this one, and in all the two sessions of this and the four sessions of the other, we never saw the stadium so jam-packed to the very walls. The aisles are utterly filled, and so are the entrances and the ramps to the various levels of the mezzanines and balconies. And now we take you to the speaker's rostrum as the organ plays a tune in salute to the nation's chief executive. The band is playing Hail to the Chief as we await the words of Chairman Sam Jackson of Indiana, which will take us to the undisclosed place from which the nation's chief executive will make his speech of acceptance. Chairman Jackson is facing the audience now at the speaker's rostrum, and we switch you down there at this moment. Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, may we have as much quiet as possible. Since the following talk will come to you by radio, may I not only suggest to you, but urge that you remember that you should refrain from any applause or demonstration during this talk. Please hold your applause and your accompanying enthusiasm until the speech is finished. Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, the President of the United States. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen of the convention, my friends, I have already indicated to you why I accept the nomination that you have offered me in spite of my desire to retire to the quiet of private life. You in this convention are aware of what I have sought to gain for the nation, and you have asked me to continue. It seems wholly likely that within the next four years, our armed forces and those of our allies will have gained a complete victory over Germany and Japan sooner or later, and that the world once more will be at peace under a system, we hope, that will prevent a new world war. In any event, whenever that time comes, new hands will then have full opportunity to realize the ideals which we seek. In the last three elections, the people of the United States have transcended party affiliation. Not only Democrats, but also forward-looking Republicans. And millions of independent voters have turned to progressive leadership. A leadership which has sought consistently and with fair success to advance the average American citizen who had been so forgotten during the period after the last war. <clears throat> I am confident that they will continue to look to that same kind of liberalism to build our safer economy for the future. I am sure that you will understand me when I say that my decision expressed to you formally tonight is based solely on a sense of obligation to serve if called upon to do so by the people of the United States. I shall not campaign in the usual sense for the office, 
In these days of tragic sorrow, I do not consider it fitting. And besides, in these days of global warfare, I shall not be able to find the time. I shall, however, feel free to report to the people the facts about matters of concern to them, and especially to correct any misrepresentations. During the past few days, I have been coming across the whole width of the continent to a naval base where I am speaking to you now from the train. As I was crossing the fertile lands and the wide plains and the Great Divide, I could not fail to think of the new relationship between the people of our farms and cities and villages and the people of the rest of the world overseas, on the islands of the Pacific, in the Far East, in the other Americas, in Britain, and Normandy, and Germany, and Poland, and Russia itself. For Oklahoma and California, for example, are becoming a part of all these distant spots as greatly as Massachusetts and Virginia were a part of the European picture in 1778. Today, Oklahoma and California are being defended in Normandy and on Saipan, and they must be defended there, for what happens in Normandy and Saipan vitally affects the security and the well-being of every human being in Oklahoma and California. Mankind changes the scope and the breadth of its thought and vision slowly indeed. In the days of the Roman Empire, eyes were focused on Europe, on the Mediterranean area. The civilization in the Far East was barely known of. The American continents were unheard of. And even after the people of Europe began to spill over to other continents, the people of North America in colonial days knew only their Atlantic seaboard and a tiny portion of the other Americas, and they turned mostly for trade and international relationship to Europe. Africa at that time was considered only as the provider of human chattels. Asia was essentially unknown to our ancestors. During the 19th century, during that era of development and expansion on this continent, we felt a natural isolation, geographic, economic, and political. An isolation from the vast world which lay overseas. Not until this generation, roughly this century, have people here and elsewhere been compelled more and more to widen the orbit of their vision to include every part of the world. Yes, it has been a wrench, perhaps, but a very necessary one. It is good that we are all getting that broader vision, for we shall need it after the war. The isolationists and the ostriches who plagued our thinking before Pearl Harbor are becoming slowly extinct. The American people now know that all nations of the world, large and small, will have to play their appropriate part in keeping the peace by force and in deciding peacefully the disputes which might lead to war. We all know how truly the world has become one, that if Germany and Japan, for example, were to come through this war with their philosophies established and their armies intact, our own grandchildren would again have to be fighting in their day for their liberties and their lives. Someday soon, 
We shall all be able to fly to any other part of the world within 24 hours. Oceans will no longer figure as greatly in our physical defense as they have in the past. For our own safety and for our own economic good, therefore, if for no other reason, we must take a leading part in the maintenance of peace and in the increase of trade among all the nations of the world. And that is why your government, for many, many months, has been laying plans and studying the problems of the near future, preparing itself to act so that the people of the United States may not suffer hardships after the war, may continue constantly to improve its standards and may join with other nations in doing the same. There are even now working towards that end the best staff in all our history, men and women of all parties and from every part of the nation. I realize that planning is a word which in some places brings forth sneers. But, for example, before our entry into the war, it was planning which made possible the magnificent organization and the equipment of the Army and Navy of the United States, which are fighting for us and for our civilization today. Improvement through planning is of necessity the order of the day. Even in military affairs, things do not stand still. An army or a navy, trained and equipped and fighting, according to a 1932 model, would not have been a safe reliance in 1944. And if we are to progress in our civilization, improvement is necessary in other fields, in the physical things that are a part of our daily lives, and also in the concepts of social justice at home and abroad. I am now at this naval base in the performance of my duties under the Constitution. The war waits for no elections. Decisions must be made. Plans must be laid. Strategy must be carried out. They do not concern merely a party or a group. They will affect the daily lives of Americans for generations to come. What is the job before us in 1944? First, to win the war. To win the war fast and to win it overpoweringly. Second, to form worldwide international organizations and to arrange to use the armed force of the sovereign nations of the world to make another war impossible within the foreseeable future. And third, to build an economy for our returning veterans and for all Americans, which will provide employment and provide decent standards of living. The people of the United States will decide this fall whether they wish to turn over this 1944 job, this worldwide job, to inexperienced, or immature hands to those who opposed land-lease and international cooperation against the forces of aggression and tyranny until they could read the polls of popular sentiment, or whether they wished to leave it to those who saw the danger from abroad.
possible to dig out of this mass and uh, conglomeration of humanity down there on the convention floor, whether in that Iowa delegation, uh, Henry Wallace is seated at this moment. Utah uh, is to try to decide whether to leave their delegation and to walk out into the parade. The parade continues and seems to increase. It certainly isn't losing any of its enthusiasm. Now, here'll be a rather vital, uh, decisive point, whether uh, Chairman Jackson will cross the Rubicon of convention desire and carry on, or whether he'll subside and let the uh, parade build. Uh, the organ has stopped for a moment. That gives them rhythm and pace, gives the uh, delegates, gives the... Uh, uh, paraders a chance to get organized and in step. And there's a band has started up above. The band has taken over. That's the official uh, convention band, taken over from the organ, which is on the perch just below. And the paraders welcome this addition to the rhythm and spirit of the occasion. While we've been talking to you, an NBC crew with Don Fisher as observer and a shortwave transmitter are somewheres in this melee of of dancing happy people, exultant in their little parade that they're starting here on the convention floor. We'll call you in, Don Fisher, wherever you are and hear us. Come in, Don Fisher, on the shortwave transmitter. Thank you, sir. Yes, as you said, I am somewhere down on the floor. I'm really not sure myself. I've been in crowded places before, but nothing to compare with the one I'm in right now. I thought this afternoon's parade represented a crowd of people marching around the floor of Chicago Stadium, but I'm telling you, it doesn't compare with tonight's. I just said to Morgan Beatty a few moments ago they certainly wouldn't attempt a parade tonight with all this crowd because I'm telling you there are people standing in every square foot of the floor of Chicago Stadium tonight and that is no fooling. Nevertheless, we've been jammed over to one side while the parade passes by. And would you believe it, second or third in line in this Wallace parade was Senator Pepper of Florida having more fun than anybody else near him. I'm telling you, he had a smile on his face from ear to ear. As Ben Grower has told you, almost every Wallace supporter here in Chicago Stadium has a Wallace sign in his hand. Signs reading, Win with Wallace, Roosevelt and Wallace, Don't Break Up the Winning Team. Roosevelt wants Wallace, and people want Wallace, and signs of that nature. Tonight we saw for the first time signs which read Truman for vice president. That was something new. We hadn't seen them until tonight. No doubt you can hear the parade passing by. The merrymakers, as they go past our microphone, shout things like, Tell them I was for Wallace, and things like that. I'm telling you, it is a mob scene. Morgan, have you got anything to add to what I've already said? Well, they've even added the final touch of a couple of stilettos. They're really nail files and a Truman sign that I see here. That's about as much as I can say at the moment, Don. Thank you. Okay. How about you, Dick Harkness? Well, the amazing thing that people who are lawyers and merchants and perfectly sane, sensible people back home will come to a national political convention and put on a show and a kind of parade that they're putting on this evening. They really go sort of stark, raving mad. They're a little bit delirious. However, I do think that it's the real old American tradition of American politics. It's democracy with a small D and the very system we're fighting for. Thank you, Don. Okay, and I want to say, too, that while we were down here, we tried to sense the opinion of many of the onlookers as to how these speeches tonight were received. The speeches of Helen Gahagan Douglas, Quentin Reynolds, and, the, of course, the President of the United States. Everyone here seems to think that they were extremely well received. In fact, there seems to be a great deal of unity behind the nomination of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, that's just about all from the floor now. I take you back to Ben Brower in the booth. Well, uh, colleagues and confrères, I won't embarrass you again by asking you where you are. We still haven't picked you out in this swirling mass of humanity on the convention floor, and we can well understand from your description and from what we see that it's pretty difficult to get your bearings in the parade that's swirling down the floor. If you listen to Don Fisher, Morgan Beatty, and Richard Harkness, uh, three NBC commentators whom we had thought were in three different places but are probably huddling together for self-protection in the unbounding enthusiasm of this demonstration which has sprung up here at the uh, Chicago Stadium. We spoke a while ago of the Truman for Vice President banners. Uh, most of them, in fact, as far as I can see, all of them are now confined to one section to the Missouri delegation, the home state of Senator Truman. Uh, maybe one or two of them have leaked into the parade. No, they haven't, as far as I can see. It's strictly a Roosevelt and Wallace parade. We want Wallace, Roosevelt and Wallace, the winning team, Roosevelt and Wallace. 
The enthusiasm continues unabated. In fact, somewhat, if I may essay a, a guess, increased. Uh, the band is piped up another tune, and uh, the parade goes on and on, passing down the uh, down the uh, one side of the aisle and around towards the other. Right now, uh, seated alongside me is Bob St. John. Bob, you've been watching this along with me. I uh, uh, wonder what your comment is. Well, thank you, Ben. What this apparently is all about is an attempt on the part of the delegates themselves to force a, uh, a decision tonight on this vice presidential matter. The uh, plan has been changed several times today, but the latest plan was to adjourn uh, rather soon now and uh, put uh, the candidates for the vice president in nomination tomorrow and do the voting uh, tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. But the Wallace crowd seem to think that uh, they have it sort of in the bag now, and I think that the whole point of this big demonstration right at this moment is to stay here uh, until dawn if necessary and get it over with. Because apparently the Wallace people think they have the votes now. The last claim I saw was around 400. That isn't enough to nominate, but it's a great deal more than anyone else's claim. The, uh, uh, the chances on this uh, vice presidential uh, uh, contest to waver back and forth, uh, but uh, it looks now uh, as if Wallace has the majority of strength. Now, back to Ben Grower. Commenting on the fact that this demonstration, thoroughly spontaneous and unrehearsed, has been going on now by the clock about 15 minutes or more. Uh-uh, Chairman Jackson is gaveling for order. He got out, ladies and gentlemen, and he was going to go ahead and a roar of disapproval that is of, of kindly negation came up from the crowd and he doesn't seem to be able to go on. He turned away with a half wry, half happy smile and said to, uh, I think it was Frank Haig who's right near him on the speaker's rostrum, shook his head as though to indicate, can't handle it or can't do it or they won't listen to it. Now he's holding up his hand and pointing at his wristwatch. If that isn't enough, he's pointing to one of the great big... Ladies and gentlemen of the convention... ...to use for athletic events here. Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, says Chairman Sam Jackson of Indiana, an expert parliamentarian and an old and expert hand at handling big audiences, but he isn't prevailing, he isn't prevailing, and now he's conferring with another of his aides and colleagues as to what decision to make, whether to carry on, whether to reset, and what to do with this demonstration here. Everyone's uh, focused on the roster. Ladies and gentlemen, and here of the we'll take a chance to go down to Sam Jackson and see how he succeeds in quelling We're this, going to this have demonstration. To stop sometime. Sam Jackson. Ladies and gentlemen, may we have your attention? this is getting serious now. People may be in, in serious difficulty. Gentlemen of the convention, we are packed in these aisles until it may become dangerous. Now this has been a great day for the party, a great day for the country. Tomorrow will be another great day. And I recognize Delegate David Lawrence from the uh, state of Pennsylvania for the purpose of making an appropriate motion. 
Mr. Chairman, I move that this fourth session of the Democratic National Convention recess until tomorrow, July 21st. Despite the extremely exciting and uh, uh, unexpected turn of events here at the Chicago Stadium, Sam Jackson leaves the platform again, and I think this time he really, really means it. And so we have concluded a tumultuous session, the fourth session of the Democratic National Convention at the Chicago Stadium, which witnessed the addresses of Helen Gagan Douglas, uh, uh, Quentin Reynolds, and the President of the United States. While all this has been going on, some uh, 15 to 20 minutes of this demonstration in behalf of uh, the candidacy of Vice President Wallace, H.B. Carltonborn has been sitting as a calm island of security in the midst of all this turmoil. H.B., uh, how does it strike you? Go ahead, Mr. Carltonborn. I probably can't hear my cue over the uh, turmoil and excitement here in the auditorium. So I'll call you again, H.B. Carlton-Born. If you can hear me, will you nod your head and, and go ahead? Yes, uh, I can hear you now. I was listening for the moment to what the uh, chairman was saying. He was repeating the announcement that the convention was adjourned. This has been one of the most dramatic sessions that we have had. Dramatic for the quality of the speeches and dramatic, of course, because of this conclusion where we had a spontaneous demonstrations such as we haven't seen since the convention began. The Wallace forces had evidently organized themselves very carefully and were determined to force this thing to a vote tonight. It seems that they feel that they have a much better chance of carrying the day tonight than they may have tomorrow morning. And so, when they saw the chairman approach the platform with the idea of calling for the motion of adjournment, they resisted, and as you have heard, for nearly half an hour, they've been carrying on this demonstration. As I was watching it, I sensed its spontaneous character. It's perfectly evident that the friends that Mr. Wallace has in this convention are very sincere and vigorously devoted friends. And they were certainly going to make the most of whatever opportunity the chairman might give them to demonstrate the fact that they want Wallace and that they wanted to have him tonight. In counting up the banners, I was surprised that the Truman forces, who are, after all, very strong and who have a good many states that are going to vote for Senator Truman, that they were so poorly represented as far as banners are concerned. It shows that when it comes to a demonstration, you've got to be prepared if you're going to make a good showing. According to what we saw from the platform here tonight, why, it was all Wallace. And if we were to permit ourselves to be swayed, by this particularly emotional demonstration, we'd say why it's all up with Truman and it's going to be Wallace. But I'm not at all sure that demonstrations, even as enthusiastic as the one we have tonight, are a definite criterion as to the way the votes are going, particularly since they are now going to be counted in the sober light of tomorrow's day. The speeches today, as I said a moment ago, were unusually impressive. I felt that three of them were outstanding. The address of Vice President Wallace, which was very well delivered, in a very fine temper and spirit, with a good deal of a sense of humor, and very effectively presented. I think you couldn't help 
liking the man that made that particular speech. You recognized his sincerity, his honesty, his force, and his willingness to say things that were unpopular because several of the things that he did say were decidedly unpopular with a good part of his audience. The president's speech, too, in its fine, broad outlook on America's relation to world affairs was a notable contribution to the present thought of the country. The convention has not yet been recessed. I believe Mrs. Bradenberg is on the speaker stand there making a few last-minute uh, uh, statements about uh, where the committees can meet and what can go on in this room and in that room, various resolutions being offered and various little statements made from the floor of the House, or rather from the floor of the convention here. The delegates are all, uh, many, many of the delegates are still on the floor, but many of them are now trickling out of the exits here. Well, a lot of little notes around here. This afternoon we saw a man selling fans here at the stadium, but tonight the fans were not in evidence, apparently. As a matter of fact, there are very few people with these fans we noticed here on the convention. Uh, some of them were fanning themselves with Panama hats and with handkerchiefs and with papers, but very few with these very fancy little fans that the gentleman around here was selling this afternoon. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the delegates here at the convention tonight had their coats on. It wasn't apparently too warm down there, except during that demonstration when uh, Governor Kerr in the keynote address uh, said that uh, we will support our commander-in-chief, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Incidentally, we clocked that demonstration and it lasted almost ten minutes. You know, one of the most uh, uh, impressive sights that we saw here at the Chicago Stadium tonight was during the Star Spangled Banner rendition by Phil Regan. There are great, big, huge spotlights here at the stadium shining down on the speaker's platform and directly in front of us. When Phil Regan came there to sing the Star Spangled Banner tonight, every light in the stadium went out except these huge spotlights directly across from us, Phil standing there in this white glow of light, all the rest of the lights out, and nothing but the little red, white, and blue V's for victory all around the stadium. The V for victory signs are very, very nice little touch here in the stadium. They are still glowing, as a matter of fact, at this time. And now, it is the pleasure of the Blue Network to bring you a broadcast with the Vice President of the United States, Henry A. Wallace. This is a scoop broadcast, an exclusive feature. Martin Agronsky, Blue Network commentator, has taken Mr. Wallace from the floor of the convention to a special Blue Network studio here in the stadium. And we'll present him to you now. Go ahead, Martin Agronsky. This is Martin Agronsky speaking to you from the Blue Network Studios in the Chicago Stadium. I have just come up here from the convention floor at the conclusion of this evening's session, and it is my privilege to be accompanied by Henry A. Wallace, the Vice President of the United States. You heard just a couple of hours ago the tremendous demonstration that greeted Mr. Wallace's appearance here at the Democratic Convention this evening. For nearly 15 minutes, the delegates and spectators assembled here gave Mr. Wallace a thunderous ovation. This afternoon, Mr. Wallace became an avowed candidate for renomination as Vice President of the United States. You have undoubtedly heard the Vice President's emphatic statement of his intention to fight to the finish for that renomination. It is now my privilege to present to you the Vice President of the United States, Mr. Henry A. I had hoped this evening uh, quietly to join my old friends, the delegates from Iowa, Jake Moore and Judge Mitchell, and many others, and was deeply touched and surprised by the spontaneous warmth of the welcome given me by the delegates when I arrived on the convention floor. But I was even more deeply touched by what seemed to me to be a rising tide on the part of the rank and file attending this convention, a rising tide of liberalism, which means to me that the democratic process is being revivified more than ever before. This means much of good to the future of this country. And I hope to see a genuinely vital expression of democratic feeling express itself in all branches of our national life. 
the meeting this evening suggested to me that whatever the outcome of the convention, the democratic people of the United States are on their way toward a continuous, genuine expression of that which they really feel and think. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. You have just heard the Vice President of the United States, Mr. Henry Wallace. This is Martin Negronsky speaking to you from the Blue Network Studios in the Chicago Stadium and returning you to Bryson Rash in the booth. You have heard an exclusive scoop broadcast of the Blue Network. Mr. Wallace, the Vice President of the United States, is presented by Martin Negronsky, Blue Network commentator. People often ask me, what audio editing software do I use to produce my podcasts? Well, the answer is easy. Audacity the free and user-friendly audio editing software that puts professional quality tools at your fingertips. With Audacity, you can easily cut, copy, and paste audio clips, making editing a breeze. Need to remove background noise or enhance the clarity of your recordings? Audacity has you covered with its powerful noise reduction and equalization features. From reverb and echo to pitch correction and beyond, Audacity empowers you to unleash your creativity. Audacity is available for download at no cost, making it accessible to everyone, from podcasters and musicians to students and hobbyists. So why wait? Take control of your audio editing needs with Audacity today. Visit audacityteam.org to download your free copy and join the millions of satisfied users like me who trust Audacity for their audio editing needs. I hope you are enjoying Audio Antiques, our Golden Age radio podcast. If you are, why not subscribe and tell your friends? For more information about our shows and sponsors, check out krobcollection.com. Our music is by H-Beats. That's H-Beats with a Z. I'm Ken Robinson. Thanks so much for listening.